This summer we're reading uh, passages from the book of Acts as Christianity spreads from its base in the Judaism of Jerusalem out to the Greco-Roman world. Today's passage is from Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John also to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they met a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But the magician, Alamus, for that was the translation of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at the magician and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And listen, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he went about groping for someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed For he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we may discover that peace which is uniquely yours. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In today's sermon, three days after we have celebrated the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and hence the birth of our nation 233 years ago, around the idea, the idea, not race or soil, that all people are created equal. I want us to look at one scene in which early Christians, in this case Paul and Barnabas, come into contact with a person who holds considerable political power in the Roman hierarchy of rulers. Looking at this story, I want us to consider what can happen when Christians live and work or at least come in contact with people who hold genuine political power. 
The person in our story holding power is one Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul who rules in a city called Paphos, capital of the Isle of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. A proconsul is essentially a governor of a Roman territory. Such governors are normally appointed to serve for one year. They administer the province and carry out the policies and laws of the Roman Senate. They collect taxes from the province and deposit them into the Senate treasury. In our passage, Sergius Paulus appears to have been in office from the years 46 to 48, a little over a decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was a period in which the news of the resurrection was spreading quickly beyond its origins in Jerusalem into the Greco-Roman world in which Sergius Paulus had received and exercised power. As the story unfolds, Luke, who is the author of Acts, begins by providing the names of six apostles who make their way to Cyprus and who encounter the Roman governor. These six turn out to be a lot more diverse than we contemporary readers might expect. When we read the Bible or hear the Bible, we tend to skip over the names because we cannot pronounce them and we don't know their history. But listen to these names. They include Barnabas, a Jew from Cyprus who had embraced Christianity and become a close associate of Paul. Simeon, who was called Niger, likely a dark-skinned African Gentile who had converted to Christianity and become a church leader. Lucius, a Jew from Cyrene, who had also embraced Christianity. Manaean, who had been brought up in the court of Herod and therefore was, was familiar with the ins and outs of royal power. John, who is simply described as one who assists, and the Apostle Paul, who in Jewish circles still goes by his Jewish name Saul, but who'd been converted on the road to Damascus a few chapters earlier, and who now begins what becomes the first of his three missionary journeys on behalf of the risen Christ. It is an interesting mix. Three Jews three Gentiles, at least three different nations represented, at least two people from dark-skinned nations, one person brought up in the king's court. The element of diversity that is lacking here is that there are no women in this mix, but the existence of their leadership will be evident in the next section of this chapter. Now, in short order, these six people cover five cities over two islands, ending at Paphos, the capital city of Cyprus on the Mediterranean. Luke then picks up the narrative. The entourage meets a certain magician, Simon Bar-Jesus, who is a Jewish prophet but a false prophet, a figure normally depicted by Luke as a pretty evil character, not the joyful, colorful magicians we see at a county fair. This magician has an audience with the governor, Sergius Paulus, 
It appears that the governor has heard that what the governor has heard from this magician is troubling, confusing, perhaps even threatening. So the governor immediately summons Barnabas and Paul to hear what they have been preaching and teaching in the local synagogue. A war of words ensues outside the governor's palace between the magician and Paul. The magician opposes Barnabas and Paul and tries to turn the governor away from the faith, to take the faith away from him that he's about to hear from Barnabas and Saul. But Paul then looks intently at the magician and says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now those of us who know Luke and Isaiah recognize that in the intensity of this verbal warfare... Paul makes an ironic use of scripture and subtly accuses the magician of reversing the promise of Isaiah that is found in Luke on the words of John the Baptist, promising that the Messiah who was coming would make straight the paths of the Lord and all that is crooked shall be made straight as well. But Paul doesn't stop with this highbrow literary illusion inserted into this intense war of words. Listen, he says to the magician, the hand of the Lord against you, you will be blind for a while, unable even to see the sun. Having been himself blinded on the road to Damascus, Paul knows a thing or two about not being able to see the sun. And about as Frank Bruni, who himself is in danger of going blind, pointed out in the New York Times today, the redemptive power of imagination that can come to people like Milton, like Paul, possibly like the magician who become blind. They can sometimes see what we can't. Luke then concludes the story by saying, when the governor saw what had happened, he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Reading these words closely, it's a bit hard for us to tell whether the governor believes because of the teaching of Paul and Barnabas or because of the blindness that comes upon the magician. But with this event... A Roman governor becomes an early convert and ally of the new and burgeoning Christian movement as it spreads across the Greco-Roman world a few years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's the story. What on earth can it mean to us? What does the story of a local governor who consults a newly minted visiting missionary about an encounter he has had with an evil magician have to do with us? I, I believe it relates. Just follow me along here for a minute. Every human being born on the face of the earth 
finds himself or herself living somewhere. We do not choose where we were born, nor in what era of history in which we were born. In this story, Saul was a Jew from Tarsus, Simon from Niger, the governor from Antioch. You and I, for the most part, live in Alexandria or Arlington or Washington, D.C. As such, we live in or near our nation's capital. A few of us were born here and have lived here all our lives. Some of us have moved here to accompany a spouse, parents, adult children and their children, known affectionately as our grandchildren. Some of us have been assigned here by the military in which we serve or the civilian service we have entered. Some of us have sought to live here or someplace similar. All our lives and our being here represents a fulfillment of a personal goal and a personal vocational achievement. Some of us are here under what we would call duress. And some of us feel we are called to be here. That whatever we sense of God's purpose, God's purpose for our lives involves us being here. Because we live here, we live at least in and among people who themselves have power within our nation or who have access to people who have power. Though I have long said of Westminster that we are a congregation of people, many of whom work for household names and don't want to be one, the bottom line is that we are closer than most people in our country and most of the Presbyterian variety to people who hold actual power. If for no other reason than osmosis, by virtue of where we live and by virtue of that to which we are exposed, we know more about the workings and dysfunction of our government, or at least we know more intently and intimately than most people who have never lived here know. The knowledge we have acquired is one reason that we feel mixed when we travel to the place we call home. And one reason that people at home feel mixed about us when we arrive, they often treat us as the visiting strangers we have become. Our knowledge, our exposure, our experience places a special burden on us not only to share the wisdom of our experience with those who would benefit from knowing a bit more about the ins and outs of our capital city, but also it provides us with a special opportunity to live out our faith to the extent possible, to grow in our faith, and to bear witness to and from our faith to those whose trust we may have received who live near or hold power.
Like Paul and Barnabas, we may not have been reared in the king's court, but near the king's court is where we currently live. And that provides us with a unique perspective on our own faith and a unique opportunity to share our faith, seasoned by that perspective. Paul and Barnabas have that opportunity. They take it, and it has significant impact on the development of the Christian faith. Now, all this sounds well and good, but most of us don't have a governor calling our cell phone to ask what our faith might have to say before an issue of the nation or even before over the state over which he or she presides. But there is a little gem in this story that illustrates how we might bear witness to those in power even when we have little or none ourselves. After Luke mentions four of the people who are accompanying Paul, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, and Menean, he moves on to describe the route they are taking on their journey and all the territory they're covering. Then almost as an afterthought, Luke stops the car, puts it in reverse, and backs up to the list of people he's given accompanying Paul. Luke interrupts his list of apostolic accomplishments and says, and they had John also to assist them. Now who is John? John is usually considered to be John Mark or Mark the evangelist who wrote the Gospel of Mark. But for now, John seems to be a rather obscure figure. Maybe John is one of those people who simply doesn't have a face that people remember, who doesn't light up a room when he enters it. Someone you have to meet several times before getting their name in your head. Maybe John is the person standing alone in Fellowship Hall eliminate on the lawn. Maybe John is the person whose, name's all, whose name always gets left out of the bulletin or if it is included is mispronounced by the minister. The truth is that more of us are like John than like Paul or Barnabas. But John we are and John we can be proud of being because John is important. The early disciples had John also to assist them. You see, people like John are the people who show up. People like John are the people who are there when we need them. People like John are the people who do the work, sometimes in more detail than we are accustomed to doing, sometimes in more detail than we even know how to do. People like John stuff envelopes at the headquarters of the campaign office. And they make those cold calls to phone numbers that may no longer exist, or if they do exist, contain people on the other side who don't want to hear from us. People like John attend the town hall meetings and actually read the information ahead of time. People like John work the polls at 6 a.m., drive people to the polls 
or the marches, or both. People like John call the civics class to order and make sure, however much against their will, that her students learn the basic functions of government. And people like John take a child aside and explain what the child has just heard on cable television. The apostles had John to assist them. Good people of Westminster, we don't have to hold power or be photographed next to those who do to bear witness to those in power, to live out our faith in the city in which those with power live and exercise the power they have. We can be like John, proudly, confidently, Because if this noble experiment in democracy will continue to work with all the fits and starts it has, it will work because of people like us, people like John. I, for one, am grateful that in writing a story about the powerful, Luke puts his car in reverse and notices John.